As a kid, I lived in a place where as a young black man, you had only two choices, become a predator or become prey. This is a quote from today's guest, Clarence Wooten, a serial tech entrepreneur, investor, and entrepreneur in residence at X, Google's Moonshot Factory. Clarence grew up in a tough area in Baltimore, which instilled in him a level of grit that led him on to a hugely successful career in the tech industry. In this interview, we go back in time to what it was like growing up in that environment, as well as how he got into tech and the ups and downs of his entrepreneurial journey. From starting Envision Designs while studying at university, Clarence then co-founded and was CEO of ImageCafe.com, regarded as the internet's first online superstore of customizable website templates. It was acquired for $23 million by Network Solutions in November 1999, just seven months after it had launched. Clarence was also founder and CEO and chairman of Progressly, an enterprise SaaS platform that made it easier for enterprises to turn business processes into visual, repeatable workflows in the cloud. Progressly was acquired by Box in June 2018. Clarence also founded Groupsite.com in 2006, a self-serve SaaS platform for building private branded communities of interest. These are just some of Clarence's accomplishments. He's also an investor and does a lot of work to encourage and empower more underrepresented founders into tech. I first heard about Clarence when he became the entrepreneur in residence at Alphabet X. He is also a graduate of the John Hopkins University and has degrees in business management and computer-aided design for architecture and engineering. He is also the only African-American to have founded and led two startups to successful acquisitions by publicly traded companies with the sale of Image Cafe to Network Solutions, which became Verisign, and Progressly that was sold to Box. This is an incredible episode with an amazing entrepreneur, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Clarence, thank you so much for joining me today. With every interview I do, I always go back to people's childhoods to see how it shaped them. And I found it really interesting. You wrote a, a post recently on Medium as you joined X, Google's X, um, the Moonshot Factory. And one of the things that really struck me was you said, as a kid, I lived in a place where as a young black man, you had only two choices, become a predator or become prey. And I wondered if you could tell me more about that. Yes, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, but in the wrong part of Baltimore. And one of those kind of forgotten zip codes is what I call them, uh, an area called Warburg Junction. Between the city of Baltimore and the suburbs, which was you know, called Baltimore County, um, kind of going back and forth. I went to eight different public schools growing up, but in my earlier years, pretty much between the ages of, of zero and, and maybe 13, I, I lived in a Warburg Junction community, although I did move away at one point and come back. Um, and, you know, it was it was a rough community. If anybody has ever seen the HBO show, The Wire, which has been off the air for years now, um, that will give you a sense of kind of what inner city Baltimore uh, is like. And um, yeah, no, it was it was the kind of neighborhood where you, you kind of, you had to be tough, you had to be hard, or you were definitely gonna be somebody's prey. Um, where I went to elementary school, uh, it was common on a daily basis for one of my friends to show up to school or or when they left school to be stuck up at gunpoint. Wow. 
we we had we didn't have gangs, but we had stick up kids and stick up kids in, in the inner city are kids who are probably maybe 13, 14 years old primarily, and they'll show up to an elementary school. They'll probably cut school, show up to an elementary school and wait for the kids to come out. And um, and they carry guns and they're and they're waiting to see who they can pick off and and take. And so whether they, whether it's taking your sneakers, your tennis shoes or your coat, um, that was a common occurrence. So literally when that bell rang after school in my earlier years, fourth, fifth and sixth grade, we would you know, my friends and I would have to check the doors to figure out who was up at the school, what stick up kid was was there and what doorway we should not walk out of. Because um, um, we would worry about walking into literally an ambush. Mm. And it happened to me on, on one of those occasions where I stayed after and everyone else had gone. And I think I was in fifth grade at the time, maybe 10. And I walked into one of those situations and had to give up my gear. So, but that's just one example um, mm. of what that community was like. You know, as a kid, you don't really realize that it's much different in other places. So you just kind of adapt. Um, I tell people that when you're, when you're in the jungle, you start to act like an animal just so that, you know, you won't be preyed upon. Mm. Obviously that would have shaped you. And I would imagine it would encourage quite a bit of grit in you, which I find with a lot of entrepreneurs, something happens in their childhood or, or something shapes them. And often that's the grit they use when, when building a startup. On that same vein, what were some early influences? What kind of influences that you had that encouraged you to take the path you ultimately took? Yeah, I mean, in those early years, this was like right at the dawn of video game systems. So, um, you know, I lived like many of the kids lived today for, for playing video games. And I, I had an Atari 2600. And, you know, I was, I was an only child, so my parents didn't have a lot of money, but each Christmas or birthday, I could get kind of one major gift. And so I had an Atari and a ColecoVision, and then later a Commodore 64. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, so, so those parents out there with kids who play video games, you know, that, that's actually a pretty good introduction into computers and for me, personal computers. And so um, my problem was I could not afford the game cartridges because they were too expensive. And so, you know, whenever it would snow, we would shovel snow to earn just enough money to go out and buy Donkey Kong. Mm -hmm. And um, so we you know, spent a lot of time. And those were also the days when, when, when kids played outside and got together on a sandlot for football or baseball. So, I mean, there were, there were fun times too. But mm -hmm. um, when you were outside of your neighborhood, you really, really had to be on guard. So what led you? Because obviously, I think from a young age, you were showing an entrepreneurial spirit. Where did that come from? Probably it was a function maybe of my parents. Neither one of my parents were college educated at the time. My mother later went back to college. but And so they had to be self-employed to avoid being underemployed. So I, I did not see my parents go and work a typical nine to five. So I didn't grow up conditioned to have to work a nine to five. I think the other aspect is by the time I was 13 and 14, we had moved, uh, I say escaped Baltimore City and moved out um, to a suburb that was predominantly Jewish. It was called Randallstown, Maryland. And it was there where, um, you know, my friends became a, a lot more diverse and many of them were Jewish. And I would go to their houses and I, and I recognized that they were living a whole lot different than we were living. The mother didn't work. Um, they might have a nanny 
and caterers would come over. I had never even heard of a caterer. All I knew was potluck up until that point. And um, so I would ask questions like, what does your dad do? And, you know, oh, my dad owns an accounting firm or a law firm or a chain of jewelry stores. Um, and, you know, pretty quickly, I realized that being an entrepreneur and being an owner was probably the way to financial freedom. But I recognized that it was two ways of doing it. One, you could be a small business owner or two, you could be you know, someone who ran a professional business, who had a college degree. So that's kind of when the light bulb went off that you can't, for me, that you can't own an accounting firm without being a CPA. You can't be a CPA without being college educated. So it was then that college became something that I had to do, not something that was optional. And what did you end up studying? So, you know, I was passionate from the time I was in probably seventh, eighth grade about architecture. I wanted to design mansions. And so up through high school, that was my thing. I learned, I think, just before high school that in order to be an architect, you need to be strong in math. So at the time, I wasn't that strong in math. I mean, I wasn't terrible, but it wasn't my favorite subject. So I kind of told myself, I think I told myself every day when I was 14 or so, I love math. I I think I said it a hundred times a day for for maybe a month straight. all of a sudden, my math grade started going up. And so ultimately, that did lead to me starting college, studying architecture. But it was during my college experience that I learned that architects did not make as much money as I thought they'd made. And, you know, I probably wouldn't make a lot of money as an architect until I was well into my career, which meant almost 40, which seemed old to me at the time. So midway through studying architecture, I changed majors and became a business econ major. Perfect. I mean, this is so interesting because it obviously shows your path. And I think I'm right in saying that you started a business when you were at college in vision designs, right? So this was something to do with architecture. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this was this was when CAD was really just being introduced heavily in colleges. And so I had become um, pretty strong in AutoCAD. Most people were using AutoCAD to do 2D drawings. I started doing things in three dimensions and I realized that hmm, I can take these CAD models and turn them into animations. And so since I didn't think I would make a ton of money as an architect, I figured maybe if I became an animator who created buildings and did fly through animations. And this is this is 1991. So, you know, really just maybe my sophomore year in college at the time. And um, yeah, so I started Envision Designs. To kind of compete with companies that did scale models, I figured maybe I should um, compete with those guys and um, and offer something different. Uh, computer generated walkthrough animated models, which um, which you see every day now in television, floor plans kind of rising up out of the paper with computer animation. But that was pretty novel in in the early 1990s. I was going to say, I think you're way ahead of your time. So you were still at college. How did you go about getting business? Well, it was, it's funny because that was one of my first lessons learned, my first marketing lessons learned. I looked in the phone book for architecture firms, um, but I targeted smaller firms, which was a mistake because they didn't really have the budget um, to pay for my services, given how much time it took to, to do one of these animations. And I sent them all le- letters in the mail and followed up with phone calls to see if I could show them the demo video cassette 
um, that I had created while an undergrad student of an architectural walkthrough animation. Um, the, the good news is now one thing positive did come out of it, even though I didn't get a ton of business because they they didn't want to pay for computer animated models when, I don't know, it just they didn't have the marketing budgets for it. But I did take my demo reel and I entered it into this computer animation. I entered it into this contest called the Caddy Awards that was put on by a magazine back in the day called Catalyst Magazine and ended up winning first place in the undergraduate division. And so I was given thousands of dollars worth of computer equipment for, as, the, as the prize. And my professors learned that I had won the award and they asked me to teach a course at the university in, in computer animation. And so at 19 years old, I was a student and a professor. Wow. Do you know, I didn't know that part of the story. That's so interesting and so young to be doing that. Most people go off to college and, you know, in their spare time are drinking and partying, not really setting up a <laughs> side hustle. But is this the business that turned into Metamorphosis Studios? That's exactly right. Um, you know, I met my co-founder at the time, a guy named Andre Ford, and he was into multimedia. He was a couple of years older than me. I was still finishing up college and he was he was working for a company and he introduced me to multimedia and authoring software. He loved the fact that I had this animation skill set and he had this Photoshop skill set. Neither one of us were really programmers, but we could use authoring software to sort of, you know, create software. And so we started Metamorphosis Interactive Studios and our first, and we started doing these things called interactive brochures for companies. And they were brochures on three and a half inch diskettes that companies could give to clients or whatever. And they would get this nice little animated brochure that was interactive. And that was the beginning of um, Metamorphosis Studios. We also morphed into doing educational software called edutainment software. But eventually the bottom fell out of the CD-ROM market. And this thing called the dot-com boom was taking place. So we pivoted and started designing websites for small businesses, which led to Image Cafe. I was going to ask you about that, but just on that note that we were just discussing, I don't know if you know, you know, do you know who Jim McKelvey is, the co-founder of Square? He's the co-founder of, of Square. Square. Yeah. Well, he's obviously a billionaire now and a philanthropist and he's got various other, he works for the Federal Reserve. He's got loads of kind of irons on the fire, but he had the same story as you. Well, very similar. He had this interactive multimedia business and he was, they were doing brochures and Jack Dorsey came to work for him as an intern at 15. And that was the business that they were doing. And then obviously things moved on and set up Square. Wow. That's a very interesting parallel. Yeah. Maybe my next business will be the scale of a square. So yes, yes. Well, I don't think you need to, as in, I think you're, you're doing okay. But with the um, Image Cafe that you just brought up, so that was, I, I understand from what you've said in other interviews, it was, you're basically doing prefabricated website templates for small businesses, which again, is so far ahead of time. 1998. I mean, Tell me more about that. What was the landscape like? How many people were online and, and how did you come up with this business idea? Yeah, well, e-commerce is really starting to explode. There was e-toys and, you know, pretty much everything was an online superstore selling something that was going to disrupt brick and mortar. And, um, you know, I wanted to get out of the service business. I, you know, I wanted to build products. And so, you know, I, I had written several business plans for various ideas, my partner and I and pitched them to VCs from afar because we were not in Silicon Valley. We were uh, in the suburbs of Baltimore, between Baltimore and Washington, DC. And 
Um, so I had become a student of Silicon Valley. I've been following the boom and, and e-commerce sites and trying to think of that, that killer idea. And we were already designing websites. So we, we figured, hmm, why not create the world's first superstore of ready-made websites? At the time, Amazon was just selling books. So we figured they're the book superstore and we can be the website superstore. And we didn't call them templates because templates implied cheap in our mind. We call them customizable website masters. And we made it so that you could purchase a design and customize it really, really easily and not have to know any HTML. And you could subscribe to our website manager tool. So in essence, we were one of the first SaaS businesses in terms of the SaaS business model. Um, And then you could just, with the click of a button, choose an ISP, a service provider to host your website, and we would automatically FTP it over to their servers. And so, but anytime you need to make an update, you can just log into our website manager tool. Now, those were the days when if you built a website, there was no social, there was no true word of mouth promotion like you see today or blog fuel promotion or any of that. Um, you pretty much had to raise enough money to air a Super Bowl commercial in order to not be a needle in a haystack. All you needed to do partnership deals with those that had the traffic and ISPs had the traffic. And of course, um, the biggest company that had the most traffic that was relevant to what we were selling was Network Solutions, which at the time had a monopoly on dot-com names. They were the GoDaddy of that time. You, you could not get a dot-com anywhere else other than Network Solutions. And so we pitched them for a partnership because Anytime somebody buys a domain name, that's like purchasing a building permit. And the building itself is the website. And ultimately, when we were in the middle of doing our Series A round with a couple of VCs, including Draper and the firm out of New York, and Network Solutions decided they they wanted to invest. And then before we can get the round closed, they made an offer to buy the company. So did you have that as part of your goal? Because I understand it happened seven months after you launched. Was it something you were even thinking about? Um, Not really. You know, they made overtures at one point, but I had spent so much time trying to put together the perfect funding round and that I told the new CEO, a guy named Jim Rutt, initially, no, Um, I didn't want to sell the company. But, you know, some things happened internally and I realized, oh, shoot, I could be out of cash any minute. If I run out of cash and my employees leave, you know, this could be because our venture round got delayed and it, it started the whole situation seemed like it was a little bit precarious. And so, you know, I ended up having another conversation with him and he made the offer again. So at that particular point, I looked at my daughter, who at that point was seven months old and you know, I didn't grow up with money. And so I realized this was too much to pass up. So I should kind of take take some chips off the table. And we went into discussions, acquisition discussions, and ultimately, um, you know, it worked out and they acquired the company. Which must have been fantastic. You were obviously ahead of time with the whole product and everything. Then you sell, which you weren't sure about to start with. And then the dot-com crash happens. I bet you're feeling pretty happy that you had made that decision. I, I was, I was um, very happy, you know, at the end of the day, I, I kind of felt like I, this, I felt like the internet was actually dead and I got in and got out while the getting was good and was starting to think about other types of businesses I could invest in or, or build myself. 
by the time 2000, late 2000, early 2001 rolled around. And I understand that you were acquired for $23 million. How does it feel to come from the background that you came from and wake up the day after you've signed the deal? How does that feel? A bit surreal. You know, when you look at money in your account and, you know, we did have investors, so I, I didn't, I certainly didn't get all 23 million, but, you know, it was a bit surreal to wake up and, and see a wire transfer hit your account that was more money than anybody in your family generations before you had ever seen mm-hmm. all at one time. And it's sitting in your account and you, you become a bit... <laughs> I think your focus then shifts on how do I keep the money, mm-hmm. especially when you don't really grow up with a financial education, right, about how to manage large sums of money, you know, and, and at that time, every investment banker, it's a number of stockbrokers, et cetera, were calling me, um, everybody from Bear Stearns to Lehman Brothers to Goldman, you name it. And I ended up choosing three different money managers because I just didn't know any better. Uh, it was a guy with a British accent, and I was impressed by that. Well, that's interesting because the thing is, I have spoken to a few people that have sold their businesses, and nearly all of them say the same thing that first of all, it's pretty surreal. You're not really prepared for it. That's not something that you necessarily expect to happen. And then when it does, you don't necessarily have all the tools to manage it. And I guess it's like winning that's the right. lottery, like you almost don't. You don't know what to do with it, you know, and great advice. I feel like it should come as part of the deal. You get a certain amount of money and then you get some advisors that are going to help you. What happened next then for you? Well, you know, our the deal that, that we constructed wasn't an all cash deal. It was one third cash up front, one third um, network solution stock, which was high flying at the time, and one third earn out over three years. So I continue to run Image Cafe as a, um, subsidiary of Network Solutions, where I just leveraged their resources and started to scale the business internally. Um, but you know, I didn't like that very much. I, I think our startup culture, and, and at the time, we probably had about 18 or 19 full-time employees, was very different than the culture of Network Solutions. And so uh, you know, I learned a lot about corporate politics in that short span. Now, luckily for me, Six months after Network Solutions acquired us, they were acquired by VeriSign, uh, and it was a you know, multi-billion-dollar deal. And so they ended up doing a restructuring, which meant that they had to pay us the full earnout because we no longer had control of the PL. And so that ended up working out for me. It sounds like it did. Fantastic. So you've had this success. You've obviously been working for a while now. You mentioned earlier that you weren't doing it in San Francisco. What took you to San Francisco, to Silicon Valley? Yeah, it was one of those things where after the Image Cafe experience, I I figured, oh, I don't have to move to Silicon Valley. I was successful as a tech entrepreneur in Maryland. And so, you know, I think probably around 2004 or five, the web kind of re-emerged as Web 2.0. And it was real clear that this was a different kind of web that you could actually build a brand and um, build traffic without running a Super Bowl commercial because you could blog about it. And people were starting to talk on the internet through social. And so I kind of got the bug again and started a company called CollectiveX, which is now called groupsite.com. And I started that company in Maryland, but the challenge was, although they were angel investors, they were there was no real true early stage venture dollars available. And I, I, I began to kind of regret it 
after a couple of years because I felt like I was geographically handicapped from raising capital when some of our competitors, companies such as Ning at the time or Jive Software or, or Yammer, they were all raising large, large rounds. And so I, I vowed that if I started another tech company, I would definitely do it from Silicon Valley. And so around 2010, that's exactly what happened. And, it's, and when, when you're an entrepreneur in tech outside of Silicon Valley, particularly in those days, it's almost analogous to being an actor that, that doesn't live in Hollywood. You know, you're not going to become Tom Cruise or Denzel Washington unless you go to Hollywood where the studios and that whole ecosystem is. And so, you know, I was feeling the same way about, about being a tech entrepreneur um, in Maryland versus Silicon Valley. So in 2010, I made the move. And did you, you had family by then, didn't you? I did. By then I was divorced and had two, two daughters, but Fortunately, I was able to convince my ex-wife at the time that it would be a good move so that we could continue to co-parent. She agreed to move. So I lived in Palo Alto and she lived next door in Menlo Park and we co-parented until our our daughters graduated high school. So you arrived there, your whole family comes with you and then you start working on Progressly, is that correct? Well, it it was one startup before Progressly. It was called Arrived. Oh yeah, yeah. And it was a... Uh, location-based mobile startup, we actually launched on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt and, and in New York and in 2011. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was exciting. I mean, we, we you know, it was, it was a great consumer app. Within the first 90 days, we had 100,000 users. And I, I figured, hey, we should be able to raise a pretty large seed or at least an A round. And there were no takers. I could not raise a round. And I noticed that Silicon Valley, because I had spent time in Silicon Valley in the late 90s when I was raising money for, for Image Cafe, or at least pitching VCs to raise money. And Silicon Valley just had a, it, it was a different feel in 2010, 2011. It had become this elitist place. And at the time I was, you know, late 30 something entrepreneur. And so I didn't fit the mold. So I wasn't sure if I, we weren't getting funded because of me or you know, because I, I felt like we had the metrics, but someone said to me at the time that if you don't get a million users for a consumer mobile app within your first month, like Instagram did at that time, then VCs will think that it's not going to be a successful consumer app. And so I, and that may have been part of the problem as well. These are the things you never know, do you? Because I guess it's not, you don't get the exact feedback you're looking for when, when VCs pass. So arrived didn't work out. What led you? Because, I mean, you seem to literally stop, start, stop, start. Like, you don't take time off. You seem to be constantly finding problems to fix or ideas. Are you someone that is constantly coming up with new ideas for businesses? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I, I come up with ideas all the time. And mm. actually, when I'm pursuing one, I have to kind of shut my brain off mm. from allowing myself to go down a rabbit hole of another idea. Mm. Um and, you know, I think when you start building companies, particularly companies that are designed for scale and venture funding, you begin to sort of build your own internal filter. So you, you start to understand really, really quickly if you have an idea that's scalable, that's venture fundable or not. And so, so yeah, I mean, I, I have a pretty refined palette or filter for that. And so, yes. So after, after the team that I had moved out from Maryland that was working for Arrived, they, after they all got other jobs because it couldn't make payroll, I guess I gave myself 30 to 60 days to be depressed about it. 
and then popped up with a new idea and decided I was going to take a different approach with this idea. And that idea was was wrestling. Uh, and usually when I come up with an idea, I'm solving a pain point or a problem that I myself have. And at the time, I could see because of services like Pinterest, et cetera, that the web was becoming visual. And I figured enterprise software would as well. So progressively, um, our whole thesis is that we turn business processes into visual, repeatable workflows in the cloud, or we were kind of Pinterest for processes, if that makes sense. And I started working on that quietly, but I, I took a different approach to fundraising. Yes. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, you know, probably after about eight months of working on the product with an offshore team that I had put together, you know, it was time to go raise money. And I noticed that young white males were the people getting funded in Silicon Valley. And so I met a guy who had left the startup that had recently been acquired by Salesforce. And, you know, he, he had been early enough at that startup, but he was also relatively junior at that startup. So he didn't make a ton of money, but he had been early enough where he had visibility into their early days with their VCs and had built some relationships. And I think he, he literally told me that if I bought him one as a co-founder, he could assure that I would get the capital. And so I said, OK, let's see if you're right. And he was right. We ended up within six months raising about $7 million. Do you think having him on board was a big part of the reason that you got funding or not? It was the only reason. Well, I'm not going to say the only reason, mm. but we did some pitching together to many investors. We weren't, and he was a, he was a sales guy. So he was, he was pretty, it was pretty good with, with people. He wasn't a tech guy. He was a sales guy. Mm. We did some pitching together and there were no takers. So finally I said, why don't you just start pitching without me? All of a sudden, term sheets started showing up. Current, that kind of breaks my heart. I've heard of things like this happening, and I, you know, I, I kind of didn't want to believe it. Do you think that still happens today? Is it necessary today or not? I mean, this was this is 2016. We're, we're not talking about a long time ago. Mm. I, I mean, I do think there's more awareness around the issue now, especially after what the events of 2020, and there's you know more funds being made available to black founders but still you know in all total you know black founders receive less than one percent of all venture capital dollars invested and and those numbers are are pretty dismal and silicon valley is only really two percent african-american when you look at the employees at all the big tech companies i had this later on in my list of questions to ask you about because it is something i know you're really passionate about and it's something i'm passionate about how do we empower underrepresented founders to get a step up on the ladder so that they're not on the back foot and they don't have to hire a white person to help them pitch? Yeah, well, I mean, one, we could change the, the investors, mm. right? And so, you know, diversity starts at the top and it starts from the onset. And so when you think about the anatomy of a, of a Silicon Valley funded and backed startup, is something like this. There's a, a venture capital fund that's managing dollars from limited partners, their investors. Sometimes those investors are CalPERS, public pension funds. That's a very select group that, that gets the honor to manage money for pension funds. And it, and it usually turns out that they're white males. And then they, you know, and, and most of the time, those are white males who went to the nation's top schools, Ivy League schools, Stanford, et cetera. 
So their networks are of others just like them that went to those schools. And so when they go to invest the dollars, they're backing people that fit that same pattern. Typically, they're white males. And so, you know, the minute a startup raises money, they immediately go and hire people. And most of hiring, I think over 50%, it might even be close to 70% of hiring is based on who you know, your network. And so um, they tap their management team to find others just like them. Mm -hmm. And every time they raise around, they're hiring more people. And so you end up with a whole lot of the sameness. And so if we want to change this, then we absolutely need more Black investors that have networks of talented Black and brown folk, Mm. or at least at a minimum, make sure that the executive teams from day one are diverse and not just diverse from a complexion perspective, but also diverse across the board because diversity runs a lot of different ways, not just race and color. Absolutely. And going back to that, so you started Progressly and you you kind of brought on this guy who did turn out to be helpful in that respect, but I know he's unhelpful in other respects. How did you feel when the company was sold to Box? Because that's another massive company and a massive sale. How did you feel? I mean, you know, it was um, anytime you you get to a liquidity event and exit, you're happy about it. Mm. But, you know, leading to that sale, I, I just thought I thought it was a missed opportunity because Progressly could have been significantly bigger and significantly better, you know, had my uh, then co-founder and I saw eye to eye on the business. And because we didn't, I felt like we had to take the acquisition offer because we probably wouldn't have gotten the scale. And what would you say, having had that experience, what would you say is one of the greatest lessons you learned about bringing on a co-founder and it not working out? Well, um, that's a really, really good question because this this wasn't the first time I had um, a co-founder. So I felt like I was a solo, solo founder of the business for the first year. And then I bought on a co-founder, ultimately made that co-founder CEO under pressure from the VCs because the VCs had the relationship with my co-founder, not so much me. And so I took on a chairman role, which, you know, at that stage of my career was fine. Anything that's going to advance the business, because, you know, even though I'm a founder, I'm a shareholder first. The challenge became, you know, when my product advice fell on deaf ears and the product did not mature the way it probably should have. And so that's when we kind of, that's when I kind of had a falling out with my co-founder, which caused the falling out with the board. But I was able to work out a deal with, with our VCs and the board at the time to be compensated for that falling out. And so ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, it ended up working out quite well. Thankfully, yes, because one of those things like having a a co-founder is like having a marriage, you know, you're expected to be on the same page. And especially as it was someone that you brought on. And I've heard of other people that have very difficult situations with a co-founder they don't get on with. And I mean, it's very hard to come back from it because you've got all these people kind of looking to you. You've got the, the board, you've got the VCs and it's who wins the fight at the end of the day. But thankfully, it worked out okay. Obviously, you you started a lot of businesses, but I know you also invest. And I just wanted to know what's been important to you in terms of going from entrepreneur to investor and back again to entrepreneur. But what's that relationship like for you? And why has it been important? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think um, when you're in, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call it the Silicon Valley startup ecosystem. When you're in that ecosystem, especially if you were in that ecosystem between 2010 and 2020, you've seen a number of unicorns explode. And you're working hard as an entrepreneur, which means that you pretty much have one bite at your apple if you put all your eggs in that basket. But you know other entrepreneurs, you, you see their businesses. And because businesses, you know, because startups were starting to get to unicorn level scales, you would start to realize that, oh, wow, had I put, you know, $10,000 in Uber very, very early when I was struggling right alongside the other founders, that would be $100 million right now. So, I mean, that, that changes your perspective a bit. And so you almost have to be a double threat as an entrepreneur so that you give yourself multiple opportunities at, at financial success, because you could have the greatest idea in the world. It doesn't always guarantee that it's going to turn into a, a gigantic company. But if you're in an ecosystem with others who are building right alongside you and you're in a position to invest in them as well, it gives you some additional bites at the apple. I want to ask you about your mission, because for me, part of the reason for, for telling these stories is to empower and inspire others. So I want to ask you, what's your mission? I think my mission has changed a bit since, since 2020, since George Floyd. I mean, I think a switch clicked in me when I was home, just like everyone else in a pandemic, watching what was happening in this country. And I was thinking about this prior to that, but it became really the forefront about empowering basically underrepresented groups to achieve equity, right? So I'm really passionate about, about that. I had an entre a fellow entrepreneur tell me one day that his mentor told him that the first third of your life, you're supposed to learn, the second third, you're supposed to earn, and the last third, you're supposed to return. And you know, I thought that was pretty profound, but what hit me a couple of years ago was, no, as an entrepreneur, you're always learning. You're always attempting to earn. Um, why not also return simultaneously? So I look to build businesses at the intersection of where profit meets purpose. And so that's pretty much my passion. But and, and then again, that purpose is, you know, opportunities that can transform communities at scale. Can you give an example of, of how you're doing that? Well, um, as you mentioned earlier, I recently joined X, Google's Moonshot Factory, as um, a director and um, entrepreneur in residence. And so I'm working on some things internally that do just that. Unfortunately, because X is semi-secretive, I can't really talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's fantastic that you're working there. I mean, I know some people, well, I'm assuming some people might have issues because it's connected to Google and, and some people you know, have issues with Google. But I think wherever you can go in and make change, it's important to do so. You've mentioned a couple of times how 2020 was pivotal. Uh, and we're not talking about the pandemic here. We're talking about George Floyd. I've heard you say in other interviews that you said today that it really was a moment in time that made a lot of people sit up and take note. But I also remember last year there being a lot of talk, a lot of companies coming forward. And I want to know, how do we hold people accountable? So when people say, do you know what? That's awful. I'm going to take action. I'm going to change the way that my company works. I'm going to make it more diverse. I'm going to put more, you know, a VC might say, I put more money aside. 
How do we hold them accountable? Because we're a year on. Well, you know, so I had been an advisor to Procter and Gamble's venture arm, and they reached out late last year and reached out to me wondering what they could do for Black entrepreneurs. And my question was, how much money do you have <laughs> to put forth? And they didn't say a ton. So my partner and I got creative and we created a, a pitch competition called Pitch Black, P-I-T-C-H-B-L-C-K, Black without the A. You can go to pitchblack.com to see more about it. And we decided that we were going to start with Procter & Gamble, but we were going to help bridge the funding gap or help large companies bridge the funding gap that Black founders face. So we started the Pitch Black pitch competition, which we which we do on Clubhouse. The first Pitch Black was a couple of months ago, and it was um, sponsored by Procter & Gamble Ventures. And the next couple will be sponsored by Logitech. And so it's kind of our small way to hold these companies accountable to to at least do something to kind of bridge that funding gap. So the winner of the Pitch Black competition, and again, the pitches take place on Clubhouse, and we have four finalists, each gets six minutes to pitch with no slides, just on Clubhouse, and it has to be a Black founder on the team. But the winner wins $30,000 that the sponsor puts up. And that $30,000 is to help them jumpstart a crowdfunding campaign where they can raise at least $300,000 because it takes money to make money. And so, and we partnered with Republic, at least initially on that effort. And so, so yeah, that's sort of our way of, of helping to hold some of these companies accountable, but we're, we're going to have to do a lot more than just that. Mm. It's fantastic what you're doing with Pitch Black, because actually one thing that when we talked before we started recording, we were talking about social media. And when you share things like this, other people get the idea. It's not something you you know you need to keep to yourself. It's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Great that you're doing it on Clubhouse. And this is where social media would be good, right? Because if you were more active on social media, not to say you have to be, but wouldn't that be fantastic that more people are seeing what you're doing and that just sows a seed for others? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, I'm working on that very thing about at least increasing my profile a little bit more because you know when people hear my story, particularly... Um, entrepreneurs of color, I, I really believe that it's very difficult to be what you can't see. And so it's absolutely important to share these stories. Like, you know, one of my heroes growing up in Baltimore was another um, Black entrepreneur. His name was Reginald Lewis. Very few people know who he is, but he actually wrote a book called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? He was the first Black billionaire. He did a leveraged buyout and acquired an international um, holding company called Beatrice International Foods. But the reason many people don't know about Reginald Lewis is because, unfortunately, he died of a brain tumor in his, I think, early 50s. Mm-hmm. And so, but I needed to see that that was possible. And, you know, Reg Lewis was also from Baltimore. And so it, it is important to be visible and, and to get out there more. And, and it's something I intend to do more of. That's wonderful. Last question. When we started this interview, we talked about your childhood and the upbringing you had. Can you tell me if you could go back to that young Clarence, what's one piece of advice you'd offer him? Hold on to all of your Apple stock. No, I I, I would offer, you know, a lot of advice. I'm not a person that has many regrets because I think every experience, good or bad, every success and failure Um, is a learning experience, right? I haven't learned anything when I was successful. 
but I, I learned a hell of a lot whenever I failed. And during these interviews, we always talk about, you know, the success stories, but there was absolutely failures. And I've just learned that you must fail fast and fail cheap. And, but failure is absolutely how you get an education, particularly an entrepreneurial education. And so, yeah, I would, I would say, look, don't be afraid to fail and absolutely dream big because you can absolutely do anything. And when you truly believe that, I think the universe sort of plays things out in your favor. Great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Clarence Wooten. As always, if you enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me if you're able to like, share and review the podcast, especially as it helps others to find it too. And a huge thank you to Clarence for opening up about his career journey. He has shown what true entrepreneurship looks like, and he's not done yet. In his public announcement about his Google X appointment, he said... In high school, I was the kid handing out my business card to promote my startup before they were even called startups. In college at John Hopkins, I lobbied to replace my senior thesis research paper with a business plan. I was a student of entrepreneurship and the workings of Silicon Valley long before I had arrived here. I was a serial entrepreneur before those terms were used to describe me in the press. Joining X allows me to work with some of the brightest minds in tech. Together we can create solutions at scale, fueled by the reach and resources of Google. I am committed to utilizing this platform to develop moonshots that solve pressing problems at the intersection of profit and purpose. Starting with helping underestimated communities achieve equity while generating outsized returns. I hope to see you on this journey because I believe we can create vital positive change together.